Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitzis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Daily Coast's Debrief. I'm Marcos Molitzis with co-host Carrie Elveld. And uh, excited to be back. It's been, uh, it's been a summer. And here we are until getting ready to really rev up our focus and activism on the 2022 election cycle. Uh, Carrie's been helping organize that. We got that coming in the months ahead, I think starting in September. But the truth is, is that Marcos, Marcos is doing most of the heavy lifting. So anyway, <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to give you credit because like you're doing a lot of the research for it. So anyway. So, so, you know, I had this idea for Daily Coast and then all these people are working on it. And then I sort of get all the credit for it. And, and this project is your idea. So I'm going to give you all the credit. I'm going to return the favor. So okay. ideas matter. Right. Thank ideas you. Matter. Thank you. So today on The Brief, we will be talking about the census. It is census week after all. So uh, the U.S. Census Bureau released its data. It came late, but it's here. So we're going to be looking at what it means for the redistricting efforts and how it impacts the politics of 2022 and beyond. Our guest today will be Cristina Tzintun Ramirez. She is the new executive director of the youth-focused Next Gen America. We, we talked to the outgoing director of, uh, a couple of months ago, Ben Wessel, and today we're talking to the incoming director. Uh, Ramirez ran for Senate in Texas last year, and while she came up short in the primary, her wealth of knowledge on, in Texas, on Texas in the Latino vote and the shape of the incoming youth electorate should provide great context for the numbers reported by the census. So a lot of information. And Carrie, I wasn't here last week. You, it was you and Kara, and you guys talked about redistricting, didn't you? We did. We did. And, you know, honestly, so so talking about redistricting, talking about gerrymandering is honestly a depressing subject. Um, <laughs> so, But we managed to have two people who gave us, uh, if you didn't see it last week, some good uh, tips on things that you ways you can get involved in starting your own statewide voting rights measure. Um, also, the idea that, you know, that e- even if the voting right uh, voting rights measure doesn't pass at the federal level for several months there's still a possibility that some of it, if it does pass if we can finally get past the filibuster you know past mansion and cinema right that there are there will be chances then to challenge really bad gerrymanders so you know there was some hope in that but then we got the census numbers and they were actually more Hopeful than just we're going to I mean, I'm not saying Democrats suddenly flip the script and it's great for us, but it's better than we thought it might be. Anyway, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, they were pretty darn good, Carrie. And not I mean, there's a reality of gerrymandering is that most of the partisan redistricting is controlled by Republicans in states like Texas and Florida, where they can maximize that partisan advantage. That that reality doesn't go away by the census numbers. What the census numbers did is made their job a lot more difficult. And it did so for two reasons. One, the rural areas in the country have basically emptied out. There is a dramatic loss of population in rural America. 
and that is uh, sort of offset by dramatic gains in cities and suburbs and cities as well. Uh, New York City got 680,000 new residents. Now, you, how did they fit 680,000 people in what is not a yeah. very big geographic footprint? Having but, lived there, I'm like, really? You but just added 700,000 more people? Really? Yes, and yes. That is more people than the population of Wyoming or Vermont. For, for context, so, you know, there's a whole other discussion about the undemocratic nature of the Senate and how Wyoming has two senators, even though it has less people than just a population growth in one American city. So there was a lot of talk over the last year and decades about sort of the, the, the decline of the American city, right? And there's always this, this romanticizing of rural America. But what we're seeing in the data is that those rural areas are emptying out and the cities are growing and the suburbs are growing as well, obviously. And so the second piece that was quite dramatic is as expected, the fastest growing groups are uh, Latinos and Asians, Asian Americans are the fastest growing group. No big surprise there. As a percentage, Asians grew the fastest, but they're, they're from a smaller base, right? So, but, um, Latinos went from like 16% of the, the population to like 18 and change percent of the population. So it's, it was it was a real growth. But the, the big sort of even bigger finding is that over the is uh, a dramatic decline in the white only population in the country to the tune of about one percent per year. Yeah. And white and only. I- this was the fir- this was the first time I think in the history of the ever, census ever, ever that there was a decline in the white population. And we're not talking. I just want to be very clear. We're not talking they grew at a slower rate than Latinos and Asians and the black population. There was an actual decline. And so what that means, obviously, is that what is the Republican base? Okay, we all know the Republican base. It's <laughs> whites and white only because right. there's mixed white. And so white only and rural areas, that is the Republican base. And so the two biggest declines, the marked declines were white Americans and rural areas. And so what that does is it presents a real challenge to, let's say, map makers in Texas. Yeah, because they all this this wide open, empty space where, you know, just a few people live. But it's a lot of prop, you know, a lot of land. So a lot of people lived in that wide open swath of, of cow land. But now there's less. So they can't carve up all these districts and uh, pulling in those rural areas when there's just not enough people in those rural areas to carve full districts. So they're going to have this challenge. And the other bigger challenge, Carrie, which we already knew was going to happen, is that the suburbs are flipping. So the two major population zones and even landmass, you know, the cities and and the suburbs are trending democratic, democratic. And there's two sets of numbers that they can look at. They can look at the 2020 results, which was influenced by the Trump turnout. Mm -hmm. But there's also the 2018 results where the Trump turnout, the Trump only vote did not materialize. And in the suburbs were even more democratic. And they had this conundrum because do they do they do they assume they can get that 2020 turnout in those suburbs? Or not? I don't know. And and I'm not, I mean, the 2020 turnout was, you know, still, it, I mean, it was better. 2020 in the suburbs was better for Republicans than 2018 was, I think. But 
But it still wasn't great for Republicans in terms of the history of the Republican Party and how well it usually does with the suburbs. So I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I just know that Biden did far better with the suburbs than um, Hillary Clinton had done in 2016. So uh, versus and Trump, not as well as he had done in 2016 and 2020. So it, it, am I wrong about that? You're looking no, at you're not, No, no, no yeah. I'm absolutely. You're totally right about that. It's, and it's a trend that's continuing. And I can't emphasize enough that that finding that the white population is declining, the white only, very specifically, the white, yeah, white only, only population is mm-hmm. declining by about a percent a year, at least the past decade. Is that an ongoing thing? Probably because the white population is, is older than the rest of the population. And it's not that there, one of the census uh, data points was that kids that are under 18, under 18 Americans, was already like 48% non-white. So that trend is accelerating. So as, a, as a, you hear Republicans, the white supremacists like Stephen Miller talk about white replacement strategy, right? That's the, that's the Nazi Republican way to talk about the fact that they're just not keeping up with pop. It's real. They are being, uh, quote, replaced that's the ugly way to look at look at it, but the, the the real way to look at it is America's evolving. It is changing. And there is one party that is evolving with it. And right. there's one party that is clinging to that thirty-three percent. It it wouldn't be that it wouldn't be that scary for Republicans if they were willing to diversify the base of people that they're talking to. So, you know, I mean like if if you if your base wasn't really formed and built on a white only on the white only demographic, then this decline wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But instead, it is the worst thing in the world for them, or at least that's the way they view it. I mean, God, they, they have a chance to compete and they just won't. They won't do it. So, you know, it's not like it's not like it's inevitable. They could oh, try. They nothing. they could it's- try to compete. There's there's ways that they could work their way into the Democratic base if they tried. And they just aren't either committed enough, smart enough, you know, entrepreneurial enough, whatever, to try to do it. Well, it would require inclusion, which by itself is is for a people that are feeling they are in decline. And the census tells us they are literally in decline. Like they're not wrong to feel that they are in decline. I'm not sure why that threatens them. It's not like this is the Taliban, you know, Afghanistan, and they're about to get ethnic cleansed out of the country, right? I mean, it just means you may have to live next to a Latino couple and a, and a black family, and oh my God, the horror of that. But it, it is that it is it is that fear that Donald Trump and the modern Republican is is tapping into, and they decided that's the path to remain relevant. Maybe a couple more cycles. I mean, I can't imagine that they look at the numbers and they don't go like this. The strategy has an end date and it might have already passed. Yeah, well, they're hanging on, you know, for dear life. I mean, you know, look at Kevin McCarthy. Uh, But anyway, but, you know, also the suburbs are diversifying. Right. So, I mean, when you talk like when you think about the outreach that Trump was doing to the suburbs, he was writing things, you know, to how what was it housewives of america or whatever housewives of america i can't remember what it was but i was like it was housewives yeah yeah, was it really white oh god housewives housewives Housewives. it was housewives it may as well have been white housewives i mean you know so so clearly behind the curve on on how diverse 
the suburbs have gotten. And, you know, I think Dave Jarman did our did a, a wrap today on the Daily Coast site about the way the demographics affected the, this new census uh, data is affecting redistricting and the population changes and stuff like that. And he said, and I think it was very, very apt, was if you think the suburbs were important in 2018, in those midterms, hold on to your pants because they're going <laughs> to, it's going to be even more important in, in 2022. It's tough for Republicans to draw districts that are, don't draw heavily from Republican, I'm sorry, from suburban voters. Yes. One of the most interesting, to that point of diversifying cities and suburbs, Atlanta for the first time ever is no longer, well, for the first time in a long time, maybe, I don't want to say ever because I may be wrong about that, but in a long time, it's no longer majority black. It was historically a majority black. That means that white voters are coming in and Latinos doesn't mean that it's becoming more Republican though. Right. Because white voters that want to live in Atlanta are the kind of white voters that aren't afraid to live next door to a black family. And they're very likely just, um, just, you know, they're, they're probably Democrats. And, but what's happening is a lot of those black people who, Black Americans that used to live in Atlanta have now moved to the suburbs, right? So it's a sort of influx where Atlanta is growing and it's growing more liberal, even though it's less black. But a lot of that black residents have moved to the suburbs and have made the areas around that were historically incredibly Republican. These were very, very deeply red counties in the past now are majority and strongly Democratic. And so, again, you're going to have map makers in Georgia because they have controlled the redistricting process. And you're going to try to pack as many of those suburban and Atlanta voters into as few districts as possible. But the fact that those rural areas have shrunk in population all around it makes that more challenging. That's right. the and, and even like New York, where Democrats have control, yes. right? Right this now, is the, you ha- this is the other side of the equation, right? One side yeah. of the equation is Republicans are going to have a lot harder time drawing the maps they need to draw, draw in order to squeeze out as many seats as they can. But Democrats have opportunities too, in particular in New York. Please go ahead. Yeah, in New York right now, the partisan breakdown in the House is nineteen Republicans and eight, nineteen Democrats and eight Republicans. It's plus eleven Democrats. Because those rural areas have emptied out and because now Democrats have full control of the state legislature, which they didn't before because of Andrew Cuomo, who thankfully is now gone and we don't need him enabling Republicans in the state legislature anymore. What you can do is you can create these monster sized Republican rural districts in in New York. And so a very plausible map that uh, has been floating around has 23 Democrats and three Republicans, so pl- from plus 11 Democrats to plus 20 Democrats right. in that state. And they, and- they, they think they, they can, just to break that down even further, I mean, not much different, but just a different way of looking at the numbers, they, they think it's possible for them to purge as many as five of the eight GOP seats, congressional seats in New York, and then pick up as many as four seats for Democrats. So when you're, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's amazing. That's just kind of an amazing number. And I'm, I'm for nonpartisan, nonpartisan redistricting commissions, right? I'm totally for that. It's just that everybody has to do it at the same time. And since Republicans are going to do everything they can to squeeze more seats and try to gerrymander their way into a majority, 
I want Democrats, wherever they can, to draw blood right now on the gerrymandering map until we can get federal legislation that equalizes it across the board. Sorry. Yeah. And it's even no, I apologize. It's even more than that, because Republicans will not feel motivated to move on partisan redistricting unless they themselves feel some of that pain as well. So so this is this is uh, I mean, it's I'm sure Sun Tzu has some kind of a dodge and, you know, the, the rules of war about uh, the art of war about this. But you're not going to force the other side to make changes if they're not feeling the pain. And so right. by heavily gerrymandering Illinois, Maryland, New Mexico, uh, New York, those states that Democrats have full control, offsetting the Florida's, Georgia's and Texas the better chance we have in the future of getting some kind of bipartisan consensus if we need to, to, to enact that kind of, of, uh, of reform, because there shouldn't be partisan redistricting. It should, we should have communities of, you know, like-minded communities try to be represented together. And, and, you know, there should be some base, the maps shouldn't be crazy looking little tendrils all over the place, which is what they do now. And that's the ideal, but also, unilaterally disarming isn't particularly the way to make that happen. So Republicans still have control of more more potential gains in that redistricting. But again, we have some. And two, because those gains in the census come from cities and suburbs and Latinos at the expense of white voters, it makes that job harder and they may not be able to squeeze as many new districts as they could in the past. So Texas has three new seats but they're mostly growth in Latino areas. What do those map makers do, right? It, it presents a conundrum. They may be able to get two out of the three instead of in the old maps, three out of the three, right? I mean, so it mitigates the damage that they can do. Right. So it, it's uh, it's definitely, it was, a, it, it was a big relief. And also it was a big relief because the Trump administration worked so hard to suppress the counting of Latino Americans, uh, and Latino immigrants, because the census doesn't make any distinction between immigration status, right? It says people, not mm-hmm. U.S. Citizens, citizens or U.S. residents. So they did everything possible and a lot of the effort in, in advocacy orgs. And, and I'm sure we'll talk to Christina about that because I think she was part of those efforts to get people counted by the census was a massive success. And I don't doubt that the Latino vote was probably still undercounted, but it wasn't undercounted to the point that a lot of us feared in the activism world. In fact, again, they were the numerically the, the biggest growing demographic in the country. Well, what's interesting, just a side note to that, and I, you may remember this better than me, but I know that I know that California, for instance, spent millions trying to make sure that everybody was counted, in particular the uh, Latino community, right? Um, and I think Texas didn't spend any money. Uh, doing that. And, and it turned, I mean, and people wondered, well, what, how is this going to end up affecting uh, Texas? And, and there's still growth in the Latino community. I, I yeah, mean, I, am I, do you, am I remembering that? Am I misremembering that, that, that I'm pretty sure Texas, everybody was wondering why wouldn't Texas try to spend money in order to get more people to answer these questions because they stand to benefit so much. And it wasn't until like they made some really last ditch effort, I think, to do it at the last minute. And everyone was like, it's too little too late. I mean, they were gonna, they were clearly going to grow one way or the other because the state's growing, but they, I think they missed out on 
an opportunity they, they probably to missed out. Yeah, they uh, a lot of the estimates had them picking up four seats. And he picked right. up three. So it may have actually cost him a seat, which actually matters in how much money they get from the feds. Sure. It cost him power in in uh, in D.C. So absolutely, there's that piece. But, Carrie, we have we have about 10 minutes before our guest joins us. And so I, I don't want to I want to save some time because you've been really focused a lot on Ron DeSantis in Florida oh. and his bizarre crusade to get children killed. I, uh, unbelievable. I guess that that gives him cred, like killing dead, you know, killing school kids with COVID gives him cred with the Trump base. Is that what's going I, on? No, well, I, I mean, I do think there's a race to the bottom, of course, between like Christy Nome, you know, and Greg she's Abbott a, of Texas. Right? She's of uh, South Governor Dakota. Of right? South Dakota, yeah. Is it South Dakota? I think it's yes, South Dakota. Yes, yes, yes. It is. And and uh, and then Ron DeSantis of Florida. I mean. The, it, it is who can be most depraved, right? In for Christy Nome, we're going to invite you know thousands of people here for this big biking, you know, this big biking Sturgis and Sturgis, this big like biking retreat or whatever, and see if we can get. You know, we're not going to have mass mandates, and you know, who who knows how many people can get infected there? And All then, of them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and then, All and then of them. Greg, and then Greg Abbott doing his thing, and you know, get, getting, you know, having uh, basically every of the major metropolitan areas trying to implement in, universal in school masking so that their kids are safe. Which, by the way, and this is something. In this poll today, only 50%, 51% of people correctly answered that in-school masking, universal masking, had been shown to reduce transmissions considerably. And so if you don't know that that science exists, you should know that universal in-school masking really does work and that, that voluntary masking provides almost Zero protection, not zero, but not good protection for. Well, if you're not wearing, if if somebody's not wearing a mask, they're not protected. And what's worse about the situation is that we know that you're not just being. If you wear a mask, you are protecting others from you more than you're protected from the rest of the people, right? So voluntary, we know it's the you know the responsible people wearing masks. Right, they're being put at danger from all the a holes that refuse to wear masks. So the problem, right, right. so it, it's it's absolutely frustrating. We're talking about school kids, Wait. and Governor of the state of Mississippi even said like it's only been like four kids oh, that have God. died. I mean, oh, you know, just just a, just four, just a handful of kids. You know, no biggie. I mean, it is just these. The calculation here is unconscionable to me. But there is absolutely a political calculation, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis is not thinking about his constituents and their lives. He's thinking about, can he get a leg up on the 2024 nomination? And let me just, let me just reemphasize what a, not only how unconscionable it is anyway, that they're playing with kids, you know, they're playing Russian roulette with kids' lives. That's what they're doing, right? Yeah. It's who they're angling for and how much of a political benefit they think they're going to get. And I just want to, some of the numbers today from this Ipsos Axios poll, which are very, which were very much in line with polling from the Kaiser Family Foundation that came out last week. So it's very comparable polling. But 
In terms of in-school universal masking, 69% of Americans support it and 30% of Americans are against it. Now, the vast majority of those 30% are obviously Republicans. But if you're trying to win a general election, what you're saying is, I am going to put kids' lives at risk, parents' lives at risk, people's lives at risk, so that I can win 30% of the vote. That's what you're saying. So so the other, you know, just another thing. So in terms of uh, laws prohibiting mask mandates, right? Like like Greg Abbott has signed and uh, and I mean, among others, there's like eight GOP states that have that have done it. But um, DeSantis has signed. Right. So prohibiting locate locales from instituting mask mandates in their schools or wherever because they think it's important and they're prohibiting that. Now, just a third of Americans favor state laws prohibiting local mask mandates. I mean, this 66 is 66% oppose. And wasn't hold this on, a one more. Okay, okay. Yeah, one more. Now, I was going to say, that was a tenet of republicanism, that local control, remember? Oh, it is. It is. And I mean, it is. Out the door. It is. It just blows conservatism out of the water. I mean, the whole idea is that government, big government over top, whether it's at the federal level or the state level, should not interfere in any way with local government. Okay, that's gone because Trump did away with it. And now they're just trying to score political points. But my point is, so not only do 66 percent oppose these laws, these statewide like bans on mask mandates, but 77 percent oppose defunding defunding governments that implement the mandates anyway. So that's something DeSantis has. has, Abbott too, right? Yeah, I I don't know about Abbott, but I know for sure that DeSantis has threatened to to defund these schools that are going against his mandate. And I I am just amazed that that this is not a 50 plus one strategy. 30% is the new 51 plus one strategy in the GOP. They're going, they're angling for winning the 30% of people who believe this. Now, I understand that most of them, the vast majority, in fact, almost all of them are Republicans, but it is just unbelievable to me that the strategy, the electoral strategy here is I'm going to appeal to 30% of people and I'm going to put people's lives on the line to do it. That's why it's so important that they that they pair that effort with efforts to uh, suppress the vote. Yeah, I mean, they can do math. They know 33 percent ain't going to cut it. So they need that 33 percent and they need Democrats at 31 percent. And that's why they are working so hard, even in places like Texas, where they won Florida, where they won. In fact, in Florida, they're being so clumsy about it. We've talked about it before that they even banned the automatic mailing of absentee ballots, even though that's a thing that has helped republicans in the past so they are they are dead set on suppressing as much as possible they see that democratic tide i mean they must be panicking after those census numbers because i don't think anybody expected what we saw i I hope they're panicking i mean they deserve frankly a much greater hell than that but yeah panic i panic away i hope they're panicking so what is the argument then that that Ron DeSantis and Abbott are making. I assume Abbott's running for president too. I don't see why else they would oh, be. Yeah. Is it I'm for freedom, uh, or is it yes. I I own I get I make the libs mad by it's, no, by killing well, children? I mean, I what exactly? Like that's, that's the subtext. 
I think the main thing is, is, is I'm for individual freedom, individual liberties. They trump all. And even the protection of people's lives and kids at school and things like that. You know, I, I wrote a piece that was, why do Republicans want children to die? And someone said, I don't really think they want children to die. And I said, I responded to them and said, forgive me for splitting hairs between we want children to die and it's so important for us to not have to mask up that we don't care if children die. Like those two things to me, why even draw the distinction? You're basically just saying I'm perfectly happy with children dying. I mean, you know, it like, it, it was over not like splitting hairs to me. Sorry. Over a strip of cloth. I mean, you don't want to vaccinate. Yeah. You're going to be stupid about vaccination, whatever. Then max the frick up. Cause you're the right. one that's going around infecting everybody else. And, and that is what's so incredibly frustrating is that the solution is so simple. It costs nothing to wear a mask. Okay, it costs, what, a dollar, whatever, for, for the mask. It's, it's, it's ridiculous that they've made this into a culture war issue, particularly since we know that Donald Trump, that, you know, he vaccinated the second he was able to vaccinate, right? Because yeah. we know he did and his family did. And yet they're all incapable of just saying, and they're, now at this point, we're talking about, you know, if they're so fixated on white replacement theory, why are they so dead set on killing more of their, of their own? Uh, because at this point, this is what they're doing. I mean, you know, honest, honestly, I, I think about the numbers that they're going to, because all of those census numbers were done pre-Delta, right? And there's a yeah. piece of me that wonders if actually they're going to lose, they're going to lose even more people than what they're counting on. It is. So, Carrie, Christina is here. So let's bring her on the show and let's talk about Texas and the youth vote and the Latina vote. And Christina Cintin Ramirez is the new executive director of Next Gen America. A couple, like about a month ago, we talked to Ben, who was the outgoing director, and he was freaking awesome. Everybody loved him. And I'm so thrilled that, Christina, that you are now uh, sort of passed, he passed the baton on to you and you're now carrying the torch. So welcome, Christina. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here, Marcos and Carrie. Yeah, and I have big shoes, literally and figuratively, to fill with Ben. So, <laughs> so you have one of the best sets I've seen so far on this show. So, congratulations on your your setup. It's actually pretty, quite, uh, it's quite beautifully lit and everything. So, slash office. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's awesome. Totally awesome. So, Christina, we like to ask our guests when we when we first uh, bring them on, we like to ask the origin story because it, it always seems to surprise us in ways that we don't expect. So uh, can you tell us what got you into politics, into the sort of life of activism? Yeah, so both of my parents are very progressive, but they're very different. So my dad, uh, so my mom's the oldest of nine kids from a very poor farm working family in Southern Mexico. And my dad is this white American hippie that was living in Mexico in the seventies. Um, he had gone to UT Austin and met my mom there. And I say, I grew up in the perfect trifecta, which is in between Ohio, Texas, and Mexico. And, um, you know, as a kid, there were, my mom is like an organic intellectual. She understood how the world worked by her own lived experience as a brown immigrant woman. And my dad was like, when I was in high school, gave me Malcolm X's autobiography to read. He made me read about Geronimo Pratt. He made me read like feminist works. Like, you know, he encouraged me to skip school to go to protests. <laughs> so my dad did. And so, you know, and growing up most of my childhood in Ohio, 
you know, I got to see that people were treated differently based on their skin color, because when we would go to school with my mom, who spoke English with an accent and her, had dark skin, versus when me and my siblings would go with my dad or into a doctor's mm-hmm. office or a store, we just saw that there were different rules for different people based purely on race or immigration or, or perceived immigrant status. And so that as a child, you just inherently knew there was something wrong with that. And um, so I'm really grateful to my parents. They raised us all to be very proud of who we are, to stand up for against injustice. And I got to have a mix of two very different backgrounds and two very different ways of seeing the world. And it's um, helped me do the work that I do. So now you have, you, you ran for Senate last year. So you really, you dipped your toes into uh, electoral politics. Before that, you were working, organizing Latino immigrant communities and workers as well. So you've been doing this for a while. And now you're at Next Gen, so it's new phase in your life. So can you tell us a little bit about what, your next gen America is going to look like. I know in the in few, last few years it was registering youth voters, engaging them around climate change, uh, advocating for for the forgiveness of student debt. What does your next gen look like? Yeah, I mean, I think one, I love the name next gen because I think it so some, says so much about where we're headed. And with the census data that just came out, you know, I think we live in a time where even though a 19 year old and a 35 year old are really different stages of their life, that we've all inherited a climate catastrophe, runaway and grotesque income inequality, and a democracy that feels like it's on decline. And so I think for us at NextGen, that ultimately the biggest challenges we face will be solved with the courage and imagination and power of young voters that want to change the status quo. At NextGen, people knew us previously as an organization that was focused solely on climate. We still care very deeply about climate change. And we've done amazing work on college campuses, but 60% of Americans do not have a college degree. So when we talk about building a progressive political force that ultimately does represent a younger generation, NextGen needs to evolve as an organization and meet working class folks, especially working class young people of color where they're at. And that's why we're excited to invest in new strategies in new states as well that help us figure that out. You know, there is no organization larger in American history that has contacted and moved more young voters than Next Gen America. And so the next challenge for us is how do we be truly reflective of both the racial, ethnic, but also class differences that exist within the younger generation Um, And so that's what I'm here to help us do at NextGen and really figure out how we are able to tackle these big problems that young people face and look at a political system that they don't feel like represents them, reflects them or respects them at this point. Which states do you plan on investing in? So we have um, an eight state strategy, um, both playing offense and defense. We are, you know, think it's critical that we hold on to states and places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. And then we're glad to put Arizona in the defensive category. Mm-hmm. And then we're excited uh, to be making investments into Texas and to North Carolina as well. Texas, where you're based, right? You're based in Texas, is that right? You're welcome to Austin, Texas. Uh, East Austin is where I live. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's have it. Marcos, how about some Texas questions? Oh, I mean, the, the big question is we, we've been sort of kind of obsessed with Texas because it's, you know, it's Georgia and Arizona have, have dramatically flipped. And 
And Texas has been more methodical, right? From 15% Romney to nine, you know, 9% Trump the first time to 6% Trump the second time. So it's more of a gradual march. Did you see anything in the census that, that gives you any sense of whether those trends will continue? Is, is, is Texas on the cusp of becoming a battleground state or is it destined to become like a North Carolina, Florida, which is just going to sit there tantalizingly out of reach, frustrating us every cycle? Because I think both options are possible. So how do you see it from, from your perch in East Austin? I mean, I think so I've been doing progressive political work in the, for the last 20 years in Texas. I spent 10 years organizing construction workers, which I think gave me a real understanding. Like I say that I learned how to build political power and have courage when the circumstances are very much against you from undocumented construction workers. They're the folks that taught me, even if you can't speak English, even if you can't vote, even if you are poor, you have tremendous power when you organize. And then I spent several years organizing young Latino voters. So the first thing is you have to understand the demographics of Texas. And I want to say that demographics are not destiny, that it takes organizing and investment. Demographics are just an ingredient for change. They're not the actual recipe of what makes change. So, and I think Republicans understand that better than Democrats. So in Texas, while people normally picture our state as white cowboys, what they actually should be envisioning when they think of Texas is a state that is majority brown, black, and young. That is who Texas is. So we are majority people of color, And we are the third youngest state in the entire country. So only Nebraska and Utah is younger than us. One in three eligible voters in Texas is under the age of 30. Um, Every year, 270,000 young people of color turn 18 in Texas. 200,000 of those are Latino and the other portion make up African-American and AAPI. So tremendous force and change. The question then becomes, if demographics aren't destiny, then how do you organize a state of 29 million the largest battleground state in the country. And it has always come down to largely the youth vote. And that means young Latinos. And um, that's what I'm excited to be able to help do at NextGen is to invest in the power of young voters of color. And I do think Texas will change. How fast it changes is underpinned on two things. One, how much do Republicans change the rules and move the goalpost as time goes on? And then two, do progressives and Democrats actually believe in the power of a changing America that looks very different? And are they willing to fight uh, Republicans and the key stronghold that they need to hold on to political power long term? Do you really do you get the sense so far that Democrats understand both the opportunity opportunities and the perils posed by the new census data with the Latino community. And I know you recently uh, met with President Biden, uh, what, several weeks ago with a group of Latino leaders. So I'm interested in your take on how seriously Democrats are taking this and are they taking it seriously enough, in your opinion? Yeah, I wasn't at that meeting, but I was here in Texas. Oh. I was quoted in some pieces where they asked me about it. Just, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, 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 no. I just wanted to clarify. I mean, I think the the incredible thing about the Latino vote is it's very, it's complex and it's not that complex. You know, people always ask us about the Latino vote in places like in Texas and the southern part of our state, which is very Latino. And you've had big shifts go towards the Republican Party. 
What you have to understand about the Latino population is that one, we are a largely new electorate in some ways. Um, and at the same time that we are economic populists, that we are poor. So some of the poorest counties in the United States are along the southern border in Texas, where you had these big shifts. 60% of Latinos make under $15 an hour. In Texas, one in three of us don't have health care. So you also had Bernie Sanders during the Democratic primary win the Latino vote, and especially with young Latino voters, which is, you know, the most common age for a white American in the United States is 58 for an African-American, it's 27. And for a Latino, it's 11. <laughs> and so our political power is really in this 18 to 29 demographic. Um, and that population also turns out less, but it's a cyclical problem because the number one reason why Latinos will say they don't vote is because no one came and talked to them. And in the Valley, who came and talked to them was the Republican Party and Trump supporters. And so it's our job and our failings if we're not reaching out and telling people what our prescription is to the real economic pain that is in our community, especially post-COVID. COVID really just devastated so much of the economy in our community. The last thing I'll say before talking about the next question is like in the 2016 election, I had so many Latino working class families that I worked with over years contact me and say like, what's going to happen if Trump wins? Absolutely freaked out if Trump won. And in 2020, they weren't contacting me and asking me about whether Trump or Biden was going to win. They were just asking, like, when are we going to reopen the economy? Because my family, like, we can't survive anymore. So it's it's um, I'm glad you brought up the border counties, the Rio Grande uh, Valley, because they are heavily Latino and they used to be heavily Democratic. And they saw a dramatic shift rightward. And, and, and actually, there's a lot of the broad narrative is when Latinos in Texas engage it's going to be a battleground. And suddenly it was like, wait, 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 what's going on? Like something, this is not what we expected to the point where like, as we saw gains in Texas suburbs, they were a lot, they were sort of being offset by these losses in those border counties. Now you say they went and the Trump supporters went and talked to them. Um, I've heard theories that it was, it was mostly extraction industry down there. So it was, it was oil and gas and a lot of a lot of them work in law enforcement. So ICE, border patrol, that these things all conspired to, to become receptive to Republican appeals. But I'm always curious when people say we didn't talk to them, Republicans did. What does that mean? Republicans talk to them like what on the ground, what does that look like? And how did we fail to do something similar? Well, one, I think, you know, the, the Valley, what you have to understand about the Latino vote in Texas and how it went in 2020 is that it's an urban versus rural divide, that 75% of the Latino population in the state lives in the major metros. Mm. Um, and that you have more in, in the Valley trends that tend to go with more rural voters. It is a more like rural spread out community, but it's also very family community based. So you had people invest in some and build some of those community models that they did pretty effectively where people then went and organized their own family members um, and got them to vote for Republican, many of them for the first time. And it is true. Like if you look at Zapata County, which is the county that Republicans love pointing to um, that had several thousand votes, but is 95% Latino, you had a 38% shift over to the Republican party. 45% of the wages in that County come from oil and gas. Mm. And so People know 
like the polling's very clear, the data's very clear. The population overall knows that there is an economic transition happening and believe that climate change is real. I mean, we felt it with the freeze here in Texas that left half of our state without clean drinking water and millions without electricity. People know that, but we are not going and talking to folks early enough and with a deep enough just basic understanding of their own lived experience and what they're up against. I do feel like if we, I I believe like when you talk to people about those basic economic issues that our side is so much clearly better than the other, but that message got lost. It was too complicated for people in 2020. Um, And, you know, it was easier for them to just say like, I'm living on the margins. This party's telling me they're gonna open the economy right away so I can get back to work. And this other party, I'm not saying I agree, but this is how people understood it and heard it is this other side is telling me we have to first do all of these other things. Which thing is going to kill me first? Is it COVID or not feeding my family? That's the thing you have to understand. It's like when you live on that edge of the margin, it, it really is just like, which thing will make me suffer first? Not will it not make me suffer? The people don't have that option or luxury or choice. They feel. What What, what would be your prescription for a, um, for things that would resonate with the community that you're talking about? I mean, when you talk about, I mean, that's why Bernie did so well. It's like plain English, who's who's responsible for my economic pain? A billionaire class that has taken the economy for its own benefit, uh, who has rigged the rules for themselves. Why is the minimum wage a piddly 7.25 an hour? We have come a long way as progressives Remember 2016 when everyone thought 15 was just insane? Now it's like absurd for you not to say that 15 is (laughs) what it should be. It used to be that Democrats a few years back would walk a careful line where they wouldn't be pro-labor, but they they were still willing to open to business solutions instead of labor unions. That is gone from our party. I think when you speak about people's deep economic pain, And I think Democrats are willing to do that more, but they have to speak about who's responsible. People need a clear villain. That's why the right wins. They have a clear villain. The villain is immigrants. The villain is people of color. The villain is poor people. The villain is queer people. Our side has until recently had difficulty saying who is at fault for people's pain. And I think that that has been missing from our side. You need to extract power from somewhere to be able to give it to folks that need it. And I think is the more we've been willing to say that people get that. And if you also look at the Latino population is in Texas and across the country, we are a people that have been here before this country existed. And at the same time, many of us are newly arrived, but who rises in Latin America are also economic populace because it speaks to people's pain and understanding of how the economy should work for ordinary people. That's when we win as progressives. So just a quick aside, uh, Governor Abbott of Texas has tested positive for COVID. The news yeah. just came oh, across. He's, Last he's, uh, <laughs> he's, wow. he's, he's asymptomatic. I, I always I always hope for the best in these situations that 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 they then use this as an opportunity to maybe advocate for people not getting COVID. Uh, hasn't always worked out that way, but but. Here's the hoping. So, Christine, I have a question that sort of pulls back from Texas and, and into your future work with youth voters. As you mentioned, they're a low-performing voting group. They're Of all the ages, they're the least likely to turn out and vote. That's just across all groups, all ages. I'm mean, no, sorry, all groups, um, demographics, races. 
And so it's always been a really, really big challenge. And that's a challenge that NextGen has taken it upon itself to, to, to uh, re- redress. And we believe it's so 20- negative. They were great in 2020. And I was going to say, but in 2020, we saw, we saw, you know, a, a dramatic increase in that vote. Uh, Christina, do you get a sense, is that vote going to remain engaged as we go into 2022? Because it's going to be absolutely critical if we need to hold the House, particularly given the redistricting challenges that we, we have up ahead of ours. Not to mention that the Senate battleground is exactly the presidential battleground, right? It's Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Florida and Georgia and Arizona. It's, it's, it's a scary Senate battleground. So we need all those votes and more. What's your sense of where that youth vote is now and what do we need to do to, to turn it out? And I guess this is your job, right? <laughs> so, and I know it's a big challenge. Like, how do you no, see no it right pressure. now? No pressure. No, no pressure. No pressure. American but... democracy hinges on the power of the youth vote. Oh, no. <laughs> right, right. The power of the youth vote. And that is in your hands. But no pressure. Just tell us how you're going to deliver democracy for the next hundred years. I mean, it does feel like sometimes that young people, especially young people of color, are trying to save democracy, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. with the power of their vote. I think so much of the attacks on voters, voter suppression, if you look at Georgia, Arizona, and Texas, is also about the racial generation gap of an older population that looks very different, much wider, uh, older than the younger population. But, you know, we're focused last election, we got 4.6 million young people out to vote, uh, accounted for almost one in 10 of the young folks that came out to vote last election. So at Next Gen, we take very seriously our job and what it means for the upcoming election. And that's 6 million, the whole country are on battleground states, uh, the fo- places we got, we're focused. We got 4.6 million in our universe out to vote. Um, there were close to 40 million young voters that came out and voted. So, wow. you know. No one does it as big as next gen when it comes to young voters. And so we're focused on 22 house seats. We're waiting still for the redistricting to determine exactly which one those will be. And then seven Senate seats where young voters can really, really make a decisive difference. We are making sure we're contacting especially young voters that voted for the first time or infrequent voters now, uh, especially for so many new young voters that came and voted for the first time. They want to know what their vote did for their lives, how it's going to change um, and the impact of that. And we've seen these big margins and gains at NextGen of when we stay engaged with young voters that are infrequent or new voters, that we can expect them to then come out in the election, especially in a midterm. So we're trying to do all that. In the last few weeks, NextGen alone contacted 1 million young people in core states about getting vaccinated and how that helped reopen the economy and their ability to get vaccinated to protect themselves and get back to school or work. We're staying in touch with young folks. And also, I think the child tax credit is going to be a huge impact for the upcoming election. I think people think young person, I think, again, kid on college campus. Yeah, um, you just blew my mind right here. So because, yeah. Yeah. No, sorry, go on. Yeah, just like the 60% of Americans over the age of 25 don't have a college degree. Like, if yeah. we are only thinking about young people on college campuses, then we're actually missing the majority. And that is how people then end up interpreting us as elites, is how are we engaging and moving at a level and meeting people actually where the population is. So I love for us at NextGen to be data-driven and think about how we do that. So we're doing some big experiments 
before the 22 election about how we scale our work to be able to be community-based and not just college-based. So we're hopeful that'll also help us in this election. Well, I, I just think it's really interesting because you were just saying one thing that the Democrats are bad at doing is sort of identifying, you know, the boogeyman, like identifying the the, the villain of the narrative. And I think one of the things that was a big driver for young people to get out and vote in this is like just my nascent understanding is that they were watching, you know, Trump just deteriorate and thinking this guy is like truly a menace. Right. We're not talking about, uh, gee, are we going to be able to get past the filibuster to get some things done and keep the government's lights on? We're talking about someone who is like dooming us right through the coronavirus. And and I just wonder, do, do we is positive reinforcement going to be enough? In other words, you know, hey, the child tax credit, hey, you know, Biden extended, um, you know, student debt loan uh, forgiveness or whatever. You know, I mean, the, the, he hasn't done the forgiveness yet. We want the forgiveness, but uh, but he hasn't done that. Anyway, I, you get you get my point. This is a long meandering question and I want you to make something decent of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's a really, really important question because. So many people did come out and vote against Trump, right? Like it, it felt like a desperate moment. And I think people that sat out the election in 2016, not a young voter, but I remember like calling and harassing my mom to go vote in 2016 and her being like, well, Hillary's just going to win. So I don't have to. And then me yelling at her and being like, no, you have to. You're a Mexican. My mom is a Mexican immigrant and she's a naturalized citizen. But I was like, you are a Mexican immigrant. Stand up for your people. Go vote. <laughs> like, um but if you actually look at the trends of with younger voters, they actually are a little bit different than older voters and that they they actually have to be told how their lives will be better. It is not enough to tell them how the other side is just so terrible. And also, this is particularly true for young voters of color. Um, they have to be persuaded um, early on. And there are several research studies that show like it's when Democrats simply use the other side is, is worse we lose. We have to paint a picture of how people's lives will be better and how the future could be different. And that's also, I think, why sometimes progressives struggle, because Republicans are always painting a picture of the past and trying to take us backwards about like the supposedly good old days. We just think that most young people don't believe that our country has ever lived our best days, that that's actually ahead of us as a country. And that when you speak to that, you move young people. So last election, Next Gen actually spent a lot of time as soon as the primary was over, reaching out and speaking to young voters. And Biden had a negative, like negative margin with young voters and viewpoint. And we saw a huge jump by actually spending time not talking about Trump, but talking about how Biden was going to work on issues like climate change or how Biden wanted to work on issues about college affordability or immigration. And I think that's where we failed many times these last few elections is just thinking, saying that Republicans are worse than us instead of telling people just very, very basically concretely how we were going to make their lives better. You saying that, though, kind of makes me a little scared, right? Because you talked about action on climate change, action on college affordability and uh, immigration, and we haven't seen much progress on those three things. So is that a danger into 2022? I mean, I ultimately, I as like a progressive want, I don't want just Democrats to win. And I think this is where most young people are 
they want real structural change in their lives. And so that has to be delivered on key issues. That's why I have hope about the child income tax credit, because that really that's groceries for people. That's people's utilities bill. That's people's rent. That's real, real change for millions and millions of working class families. The smartest thing that the Biden administration could do is cancel a huge portion of student debt, if not all of it right now. I mean, I I just don't get it. I think that the infrastructure bill is really exciting and to see the portions that have been put back in there to look at real long term economic change and tackling climate change at the same time. And so the question is, like, do we have enough force to get them over the finish line? I feel like there's from progressives. I think sometimes I also want to remind us how far we have come. Yeah, of course. Because I remember a few years ago before Trump, when Democrats positions on immigration weren't necessarily always clear. We a few years ago, you know, were willing to support an immigration plan that also included $40 billion for border wall enforcement and militarization in our communities. That's not something we're talking about anymore as a Democratic Party. As a Democratic Party before, we supported, you know, locking up and tough on crime bills that locked up an entire generation of young people of color in this country. Um, And we're not in that place anymore. So we have come a long way. I think when it comes to big economic structural change, our party is generally speaking the right way now. And now we need to see the policies move in the right way. So, Carrie, we had time for one more question. Do you do you have one teed up? My only question is, is do you think there's any chance and what needs to be done to push Biden to cancel a sizable amount of student debt? So I, again, I wasn't in that last meeting and he hasn't called me since then. So I don't know. But <laughs> I mean, I think that a lot of folks are pushing. It is it was good to see that, you know, during the pandemic that payments were deferred. It is like, in my mind, one of the smartest economic things that we could do as a country that by investing in your people, it's your greatest asset. I think there's a lot of understanding of that. The question is, do we understand actually and are we willing to move forward to address the student debt crisis? You know, before this before the pandemic, one in five student debt borrowers were supposed to be were already in default. And I think that we're going to see those numbers climb back up uh, once payments are restarted. So, Christina, one last chance to pitch uh, Next Gen America. What can people do to join your organization? Go to nextgenamerica.org. We have one of the country's largest distributed organizing um, teams, 25,000 folks strong that are texting, contacting, reaching out. It's an incredible online community, so people can be a part of it anywhere. And they can also follow us on social media to come be part of the largest youth power political movement in the country. So thank you so much, Christina Tsinsun Ramirez, uh, uh, executive editor of Next Gen America, an all-around kick-ass activist and human being. So so thrilled you're at Next Gen. So excited to be working with you guys in the years ahead to try to get youth voters uh, engaged. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, y'all. Take care. Carrie, we are out of time. So much there to chew on. I, I really, I didn't even think of the child tax credit as being youth-oriented, but it really, you know, kind of, she's right that sometimes we get trapped in these sort of elite bubbles, right? Where like we're used to being around educated people. We're used to being uh, coastal. There's a lot of young people with kids. There's a lot of young people with kids. I mean, just my, my cohort of people is older people with kids. Right. But like it makes you excuse your perception. 
it's, it it's cute. There's a lot of people who have kids in their 20s. You know what I mean? Like in their teens. That, and that, <laughs> in their teens. That used to be the norm was tw- was often 20s and and sometimes even teens. So I'm I'm really thrilled that we have somebody that has that sort of record organizing rural and immigrant communities where you're seeing something different than, than we may not see in our day-to-day lives. And that's the sort of perspective that I hope more democratic organizations, liberal organizations sort of adopt. And that's one of the values of diversifying your organizations that you get those perspectives that aren't, I mean, they're obvious in hindsight, but they're not obvious until somebody points those out. So pretty exciting. Um, but it is that youth vote is going to be a big, big challenge. Just a reminder that those child tax credits, they are coming, but they're not forever. And so if Democrats can manage to put that into their bill and yeah. cement them for the long term, that would be an amazing you know, talking point, an amazing thing to policy to roll out to people. Yeah, so much work ahead of us. So that's our show. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to Christina Tintun Ramirez for being our guest. Thank you, Carrie, for being my co-host. Thanks to Walter Einenkelt for producing uh, and the rest of the Daily Coast team, Kara Zelaya, Carolyn Fidler for helping do the social media and all those other things that make this show run. Thanks to you for listening. You can follow us at Daily Coast on Twitter. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and you can you know, like, subscribe to the podcast, to the YouTube channel. Just be engaged. Talk to us. Let us know you exist and uh, and uh, be part of the Daily Coast community. So thank you so much again. See you all next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at DailyCoast.com or on Twitter at DailyCoast. See you next week.